Welcome to EM Talkscast. Uh, today, my guest is Dave Verrier, and Dave is our uh, fellowship director in medical toxicology, uh, has been uh, with us for quite a while, trained with us, did some other things, and came back and took over the, the fellowship program. I am very excited to sit here with Dave and talk about uh, opioids, opioid withdrawal, and the management uh, of same in the emergency department. And our motivation comes from uh, our work that we are very close to bringing to fruition in the ED and uh, with a Suboxone program. Uh, we um, here at uh, our institution see a lot of opioid use, opioid misuse, and um, really felt the need to, uh, as the data began to mount to say that Suboxone was the right way to go, really felt like we needed to bring that program uh, to the ED. So Dave was very instrumental in getting that getting that going for us. Dave, you are also boarded in addiction medicine as well. Not yet. Not yet? I'm, oh. I'm eligible for oh, it. Oh, you're eligible. eligible for it, but I will probably be taking the boards next year. Okay, very good. What's it like to study for the addiction medicine boards? It's a different focus, actually, than either emergency medicine or the medical toxicology because they deal a lot more with receptor uh, types and the activity of receptors and how uh-huh. use of different medications or drugs alters those receptor sensitivities and their, their firing and, and all kinds of postsynaptic changes. Interesting, interesting. I thought the MedTox boards were hard. It sounds like addiction medicine might be pretty challenging. <laughs> yeah, like hard in a different way than the MedTox boards. The MedTox boards were all about, you know, Insert picture of random plant here. <laughs> What's the poisoning? Yeah. Um, and so it's so much minutia, whereas uh, they're all about pathways. Right. So what is it? The uh, Steve Curry chapter in Gold Franks? Is yeah, <laughs> that's, that's about right. Yeah. You've got those imprinted on your brain like the uh, New York City subway map. Well, so let's dive into it. And, and you know, our audience today is going to be, I think, the typical EM Toxcast audience, which is, you know, our residents, our attendings, our faculty, the wider group that looks at that confluence where EM and toxicology really meet. So let's talk a little bit and make sure we understand what we're dealing with in terms of opioid pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. What are the receptors that, uh, I mean, we think opioid receptors, but it's a little bit more than that, isn't there? Right. So uh, within the brain, the CNS system, there's three different main types of opioid receptors. There's the mu receptors, the kappa receptors, and the delta receptors. Okay. Uh, the mu is the one we can think about when we're thinking about classic effects of opioids. That's your euphoria, your respiratory depression, um, the pruritus, constipation. That's almost all mu. Okay. Uh, and then um, the kappa receptors actually have a different uh, effect. Um, they actually cause dysphoria and then also some psychosis. Um, so interestingly, um, there are, of course, pharmaceutical companies are looking for different types of uh, ways to change the opioid market. And they produce kappa receptor uh, opioids that really work just on kappa. And these are sold on the street. And so you can mm. buy them from China um, and abuse them and end up becoming incredibly psychotic and dys, uh, dysphoric, uh, which is not what you'd want from an opioid. But but people uh, buying stuff on the internet often don't know what they're buying, so that, mm. that is how that goes. They're not labeled with uh, kappa receptor okay. specific. <laughs> this one will really make you feel terrible yeah. type of drug. Yeah, try this one. So give me an example of a, of a kappa agonist that would, uh, you know, it would be like, <laughs> let's avoid that if we can. So one that we've seen here at Hahnemann um, and then in the Delaware Valley, just generally through poison control, is mm. uh, U47700. 
Um, gotcha. It became popular up in Canada. It's sold mostly out of um, China, uh, where it's manufactured along with a, a lot of other patented uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and it's sold to usually uh, to drug dealers here in the United States who then will package it themselves uh, and sell it on the internet um, uh, to unwitting um, drug users. Mm. Uh, and so we've uh, had a patient show up here who had used this. Uh, he was uh, he didn't have a fatality. He was just in- incredibly psychotic. Mm. Um, we were able to pin him down a few days later to that he had used this U47700. And then the CDC's reported several fatalities across the United States with regards to that same substance. Interesting. So the now the kappa receptors, I sort of had in my head that they were spinal column receptors. Is that not true? Or they're in the CNS as well? They absolutely are spinal column receptors as well. They um, are responsible for spinal analgesia. So when we give somebody um, a, a, an opioid um, into the, the epidural space, um, or uh, we're actually attempting to agonize those exact receptors. Aha. Okay. I get it. Uh, so, but the um, on balance, the CNS effects, uh, the psychosis tends to come into play when it comes into U four four U U forty four seven hundred, or U four seventy seven hundred. We'll just call it U four. All right. So there, and then that is, of course, another um, rather distressing example of how the um, unemployed chemist situation is creating a drug epidemic uh, uh, a world away. We, we see this, of course, with synthetic cannabinoids, where yeah. you just cull the literature for um, pharmaceuticals that were created, maybe made it nowhere. Uh, and, um, and I think Upjohn was working on U4-7700. Um, uh, but they made it nowhere. They're discovered by somebody who says, oh, all right, well, just get in the lab and put these together. We find them, uh, you know, half a world away on the on the streets of Philadelphia. Talk about the, how the pharmacokinetics of these drugs vary and what the effect is uh, um, based on pharmacokinetics. If I know something about the pharmacokinetics, how does that influence what I see clinically? Right. So there, of course, are a, a broad array of clinically available uh, opioids uh, for use therapeutically and then also, of course, for abuse. And um, the, uh, the pharmacokinetics of those drugs really affects the clinical picture. So the more lipophilic the drug is, the faster it will get into the brain, um, mm-hmm. the faster we'll see um, those opioid receptors firing off. And that will give you not only a fast onset of clinical effects, but it will also give you that euphoric rush that, that users are craving. So mm. if we give morphine, morphine is only moderately lipophilic. It takes a while for it to cross the blood-brain barrier. Therefore, the euphoria with it is not so great. Gotcha. If we give diacetylmorphine, uh, which is heroin, right. those acetyl groups that we, we stuck onto that morphine um, make it squeeze right through the blood-brain barrier, hit those opioid receptors uh, almost immediately, and you get that incredible euphoric rush that is associated with heroin um, abuse. Um, so that, that speed of penetration to the CNS is very important, and then the metabolism rate also is very important, and whether or not there's active metabolites present or not. Uh, so uh, a good example of that would be um, you know, codeine, which itself is inactive at opioid receptors, but then is metabolized to morphine. Right. So you're going to see a longer, a slower onset to effect, and then a, a relatively long um, effect time because of, of how long morphine sticks around. If we're talking about fentanyl, which is mm. rapidly metabolized. Right. Now we're talking about rapid on, rapid off. Methadone sticks around for days. Right. 
So um, the timing we got, we go from the peak opioid effect to withdrawal um, will change. If someone's on Oxy-IR, their withdrawal will start uh, 12, 24, 36 hours after their last use. But right. if they're on OxyContin, their withdrawal is going to be more like two to three days out. Gotcha. So an awareness of this uh, vis-a-vis the patient you are dealing with, their drug use, and the symptoms that you're seeing are important in understanding whether the patient is appropriately in the time frame you'd expect for withdrawal. Right. Of course, it gets clouded when you have mixed use, and then it gets clouded when, in fact, you really don't know what heroin is anymore. Uh, not that we ever did. The adulteration of heroin is as old as heroin itself. But with the uh, the fentanyls, the carfentanyls, um, uh, we are really getting a mixed bag, potentially, of different opioids every time we, we deal with an opioid overdose. So I think, importantly, given that what we're talking about is a suboxone or buprenorphine naloxone mix uh, um, as a program for dealing with opioid withdrawal, let's talk a little bit about those receptor ligand interactions and why the um, average EM physician should really know what they're all about. I think we all know what an agonist is, and morphine and heroin, um, uh, uh, diacetylmorphine, and fentanyl, et cetera. They all fit the agonist picture. And we know, we know that when we give naloxone, we reverse the opioid effect. But in fact, naloxone and naltrexone are what we call inverse agonists, right? So an inverse agonist, if you can imagine... The agonist is, is, creates an effect. The inverse agonist takes you to, um, uh, if, the, if the agonist is, it takes you from 0 to 10 on the volume dial, the inverse agonist takes you to negative 3. In theory, a neutral antagonist is a pure blocker. just brings you back to, um, to 0. Um, an inverse agonist like naloxone, naltrexone, brings you below that. And then we have the... Um, important subject for the day, which is a partial agonist, which is buprenorphine. Now, buprenorphine is a mix of, um, or suboxone is a mix of buprenorphine and naloxone. Why do they throw the naloxone in there? Uh, So the reason why they do that is to try to avoid misuse of the suboxone. So uh, when used appropriately, for example, if it's used as a sublingual strip, what will happen is the, uh, the buprenorphine will be absorbed the naloxone will not be absorbed, right. uh, and therefore it will be, uh, you know, it'll, it'll eventually pass it through your GI tract. Um, whereas if you were to take that same suboxone and dissolve it and then try to inject it, um, you would get the full dose of the naloxone, right. which would potentially send you into some withdrawal, and you wouldn't attempt to abuse it in that fashion again. So the use of the co- co-formulation with naloxone is an attempt to, to reduce uh, misuse of the drug, uh, the same way that we've done with OxyContin, there's, they use a certain gumming type of uh, right. formula to it to try to make it difficult to dissolve. Here they've just added the naloxone to it. So if you are habituated or, let's say, to use the term, um, addicted to uh, an opioid, um, you're taking an agonist, uh, and you would, if you took Suboxone, right, what would happen? You're saying as as intended, like you were to use it buckly or something. Right, right, right. You didn't inject it. In other words, yeah. you you basically so you're a daily heroin user, and someone said, "Go ahead and uh, take this. You'll be you'll be fine." It would it would probably send you into a pretty good withdrawal state. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why there is because um, you're used to having a, uh, a complete agonist, a full agonist acting at those op- opioid receptors. Your body's become habituated to that. Um, you've got the tolerance for that. 
and now you throw on buprenorphine, uh, which is only a partial agonist, mm-hmm. it's going to kick the heroin off. Uh, and so we, you go from having that receptor firing 100%, now that receptor is only firing 50%, mm-hmm. and that's not enough to keep you at an even keel. So you go into withdrawal, and the withdrawal from this can be quite uh, quite severe. We've seen patients actually develop um, uh, Takusubu's uh, cardiomyopathy mm-hmm. um, because of the stress response. And then the classic uh, response to it is uh, like a pulmonary edema, flash right. pulmonary edema from, from acute withdrawal. So um, it can be pretty severe uh, if you sub in this buprenorphine. And, and one other problem with that is the buprenorphine's got a very high affinity for the receptor. So it will kick anything else off. If you've got morphine on board, it will kick the morphine off, um, which makes it difficult for us to reverse that once the buprenorphine is there. Right. So that, I think, is the little little trick of understanding this that I think is good for our listeners to, to think about. The buprenorphine binds very aggressively to the opioid receptor, but it does not trigger um, a full agonist effect. And so, like you said, it will um, step up to that receptor and kick the morphine off but it does not result in the same complete agonism uh, like a morphine. And so you can, as you say, most definitely precipitate a fairly uh, difficult withdrawal for the patient. Yeah, if you, if you think about um, three different opioids that have really high affinities for the receptor, opioid receptors, one would be carfentanil, sure. a second would be buprenorphine, and a third would be naloxone completely different effects of the receptor, but all three are, have a very high affinity. And that's why we can give naloxone for uh, heroin overdoses because the naloxone's got a high affinity. It will hop on the receptor, kick everything else off. Um, buprenorphine's actually got a, a very high affinity similar to naloxone. So you may need a higher dose of naloxone to treat a buprenorphine overdose, like in a small child who's gotten a hold of some suboxone. You'll and need a, we've a, definitely seen that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Subox- to 10 milligrams. Yes, you know, right. You're really giving a lot. And then um, when you deal with things like carfentanil, which you usually see in um, zoologists who accidentally self-administer when they're trying to give it to an elephant, mm. um, now you're talking about needing th- something like 50 milligrams of naloxone or 100 mm-hmm. milligrams of naloxone, doses we don't use clinically because we're trying to kick off such a very high affinity um, uh, opioid receptor binder. So I think that's really, I think it's really key because there is a, a bit of misperception that the um, naloxone in the buprenorphine or the suboxone, excuse me, is causing the issue. And um, folks really need to understand that the, that the, these four mechanisms of, of agonist, inverse agonist, neutral, uh, neutral, ag, neutral antagonist, I'm sorry, and partial agonist um, are very important to sort out. Well, we certainly have seen um, our fair share of the opioid em- epidemic, um, and we we may not need much of a reminder about how bad it is. But what's why? What prompted us? You know, what kind of data are we looking at here? Um, certainly in Philadelphia or around the U.S. to say we really need to do something from the emergency department standpoint. What what can we say to our fellow EM docs to say, hey, you should consider doing a suboxone program too? So I think that the the best. Uh, statistic to throw out there to people when you want them to just understand the breadth uh, of the opioid problem here in the United States is to compare it to motor vehicle crashes. Okay. We all understand um, the amount of morbidity and mortality that, that's caused by motor vehicle crashes. It's, it's an easily, uh, it's easy to wrap our heads around right. uh, um, as a comparison. So to compare that, uh, drug overdoses now uh, cause about twice as many deaths as motor vehicle crashes. And when we're talking about drug overdoses, uh, more than half of those are opioids. Mm. So 
just a phenomenal amount of mortality um, attached to the use of these uh, these drugs lately. Um, and then um, the morbidity, of course, is, is just astounding in terms of it tearing people's lives apart because trying to get that next fix, um, trying to, um, to uh, have money for the drug, whether that's uh, stealing um, or your job falling apart or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a really, it's a very difficult addiction um, and it causes a lot of pain and suffering here. My, my little vignette on this is that I think back to my high school days and I don't know anyone who died of a heroin overdose and I grew up in Philadelphia and in Philadelphia area um, and my children uh, I have four children they all know someone they went to high school with who died of an opioid overdose and sometimes more than one so there's a generation out there that has just been impaled by this epidemic and I agree with you uh, finding a way to to put it into um, tangible format, I think, is a great way to let people know they need to uh, really sort of act on on this. So let's get some terms straight. Um, we, we'll talk about patients who are opioid tolerant. We'll talk about folks who are dependent. And then, then there's a term of addiction. What does, what does all that mean? So those are um, good terms to keep straight when you're, when you're trying to define what to do or how to help these patients. So Um, A patient who is tolerant or dependent on opioids is not necessarily addicted to opioids. Uh, So somebody, for example, who's been on OxyContin for 10 years for their failed back, um, uh, that patient, maybe they're taking 80 milligrams a day. Um, They are definitely going to be very tolerant Mm -hmm. um, because they're on this long-term oxycodone and they will be dependent on the drug, where if we were to remove that OxyContin from them, we would take that away, um, they would then have hyperalgesia from opioid overdose. Their back would feel terrible. Um, but those patients aren't necessarily addicted, which is where addicted is where you are using that drug um, in a different way than it was prescribed. You're taking more of it than was intended. I gotcha. Um, you're altering your behavior to make place a place for the use of that drug. Um, so it's entirely possible to be dependent but not addicted. Similarly, uh, you can be addicted to, for example, heroin, but not have any tolerance if you haven't had any heroin in the last two weeks. You may be addicted to heroin. You're seeking it out. You're attempting to use it, but since you were in jail or what, you were somehow in the hospital. You were removed from it for two weeks. You no longer have a significant tolerance to it. So it's good to keep those two different um, concepts, you know, distinct from each other, even though they're related, which is tolerance and addiction. Yeah. So when we, we we see have seen sad situations where a former heroin addict is incarcerated, gets out. Uh, uses an amount of drug that they were quite used to before and then respiratory arrest, even death, because their tolerance has changed uh, greatly. And and they have an opioid addiction, right? They began craving opioids as soon as they could possibly get access to them, uh, but the tolerance changed. And it goes the other way as well, right? Somebody on chronic pain meds, you're giving a dose of um, morphine or Dilaudid uh, and um, they're getting no effect. Two rooms over, the same dose is putting is is causing uh, problems for that patient. So, um, it is uh, it's good to have those uh, good good to have those uh, straight. How do people get tolerant to opioids? Is it um, when does that start? Does it you know uh, is that an immediate process? Is it a receptor thing? How does the whole thing work? 
It's gradual in onset, and it is receptor-mediated. So um, all of the opioid receptors, they're not direct ionophores. They don't cause sodium to enter the neuron or potassium or, or chloride. What they do is they activate a second messenger system with cyclic AMP. And so um, use of these opioids, um, exposure to them, will change the uh, neuron's response to the cyclic AMP um, through expression of, this, of a protein called CREB. CREB, right. And as we, as we express more of that CREB in our neurons in response to this continued presence of opioids, we're going to start having that tolerance, um, the dependence to uh, the opioid. And then if we were to remove the opi- opioid, now because of that CREB being present in the neuron, we'll go into withdrawal state where uh, you have the opposite of the effects of the opioid with you know, uh, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, um, arthralgias, myalgias. Uh, all of that will occur because you're removing what was the, the pri- prior uh, activity at that receptor. So you get you basically CREB then resets the normal, if you will, to accept the constant presence of opioids on the receptor. And uh, without those receptor, the new normal becomes physiologic derangement, basically. Um, so, uh, and that is a common that 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 uh, that CREB. Uh, genomic response is a common uh, factor in a lot of um, dependence, tolerance, and withdrawal phenomenon. Well, we're hoping folks um, learn to recognize the opioid withdrawal sy- syndrome. I think most EM physicians uh, do. What's wh- What are the signs and symptoms? And, and for you, what's a what are a few sort of sine qua nons that make you say, oh, this person's for sure an opioid withdrawal? So the, the most um, common presenting complaint is going to be uh, myalgias, arthralgias, and generalized body pain. Uh, and the reason why it's the most common presenting complaint is because that's what really causes the distress for the uh, newly opioid abstinent person. Um, they uh, just feel completely miserable. Um, other things you often get with it, um, like the GI upset with uh, cramping, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, that's pretty common. Um, it usually causes some distress for the patients. Um, something we might see as doctors that the patient doesn't really complain of is some autonomic uh, hyperreactivity where a person might be hypertensive, uh, tachycardic, um, and some of those could be driven by you know the pain or by the GI distress, um, but otherwise it's also driven by um, that response to the removal of the opioid from the CNS. Um, so that would be, at least for me, kind of the, the things I most commonly see when I, mm-hmm. when I go into a patient uh, with, who's got some opioid withdrawal going on. So hard signs you might look for, rhinorrhea, pyloerection, um, they're um, uh, at the tail end of the withdrawal phenomenon. Early on, uh, the uh, aches and pains and, and the sort of just dysphoric state uh, seems fairly common. A lot of folks feel uncomfortable uh, making the diagnosis based on what seems like a craving set of uh, complaints mm-hmm. and look for some hard signs and symptoms. So. We um, do have a opioid withdrawal scale, the COWS, um, and we're going to be employing that in our Suboxone program. The, sub, the, the COWS is, seems to be pretty reasonable uh, score and seems pretty reproducible from one practitioner to the other. So I think it's a great advantage over um, things that we've done in the past, like for example, using hard signs and symptoms like nobody gets methadone on, on, unless they have rhinorrhea or, or um, pyloerection. Well, up to now, we've been using non-suboxone approaches. Uh, probably worthwhile to go over those uh, right off the bat. 
Um, obviously, um, everyone knows about clonidine and how clonidine functions uh, is to trigger the alpha-2 receptors, and they share a common potassium pathway that allows for a, um, a nice overlap between opioid uh, receptor uh, effects and the clonidine receptor effects. It makes it a good blood pressure medication for somebody who's an anxious person as well, although the rebound is not great. Um, what dose would we use if we were going to use clonidine, and, and um, what other adjuncts might, might we throw in there? So I, I go straight to 0.2 milligrams of clonidine as long as I feel that the patient's blood pressure and volume status can handle it. Okay. Certainly if they look like their volume depleted from vomiting and diarrhea, that might be something I'd hold off on until at first I fluid resuscitate gotcha. them. Gotcha. Uh, but most patients can handle a 0.2 of clonidine without any difficulty or problem. Um, and that will give you, um, you know, some relief of the, uh, some of the autonomic um, effects uh, from the opioid withdrawal. Um, but it really is not effective for the craving problem, um, as none of these, none of these uh, adjunctive therapies really are. Um, I uh, love octreotide for opioid okay. withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just phenomenal on the GI tract. It doesn't do anything for the myalgias and arthralgias, but in somebody who's got cramping and diarrhea, you can throw um, 75 micrograms or 100 micrograms of octreotide either in their IV or subcutaneously, and you can alleviate some of that GI uh, distress mm-hmm. within a good 20 to 30 minutes. They'll feel a lot better because you'll have removed at least that one part of the uh, withdrawal syndrome. Yeah, octreotide came into play uh, with a lot of the um, precipitated withdrawal, rap- rapid detox uh uh, types of programs that are out there, and it is very effective on the GI, but uh, as you say, only on the GI. Um, what about some other things, um, uh, Haldol, Ativan, other adjuncts uh, in terms of managing the patient? Just a whole bunch of hooey, or is there a little overlap? So th- I think of I think of the Haldol and the Ativan as kind of masking the uh, withdrawal, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's a self-limited phenomenon. Withdrawal lasts, uh, depends on, on the drug being abused. The longer the half-life of the drug being abused, the longer the withdrawal syndrome. But we're talking three to five days for, for most of withdrawal. So if you want to try to mask it with a bit of a benzodiazepine um, or an antipsychotic, um, it's certainly reasonable, but um, it doesn't physiologically reverse anything. Gotcha. Um, one other maybe adjunctive that we could, we could talk about would be um, using NSAIDs or, or even Tylenol. Um, they are effective at taking some of the edge off of the um, the myalgias and arthralgias that occur with the, with the syndrome. Again, doesn't affect craving, but right. it can it can remove some of the 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 uh, the pain that's associated with, with with the withdrawal syndrome. Gotcha. There is a huge overlap in mental health issues, personality disorders, and what have you. Very often, the Haldol Ativan is really addressing that component as well. A lot of behavioral issues that we see in the emergency department. But you're 100% right, not really more focused on coping mechanisms, right. <laughs> less so on specific opioid withdrawal. So they do have a role in helping people uh, manage their behavioral issues. But you, as, you're, as you say, they don't really solve the problem. Well, um, we probably ought to get into what we think is the right thing to do. We hear about things like warm handoffs, harm reduction philosophy. Uh, what, the, what does all, all that mean? So harm reduction is um, the current movement, I think, in most of Western medicine when it comes to dealing with uh, problems of of all drug abuse, uh, including the opioids. And that is that uh, instead of focusing so much on uh, getting that person away from the drug, 
let's focus more on reducing harms associated with the use of the drug. So harm reduction refers to any sort of um, uh, undertaking or, or action that, that intends to reduce the side effects uh, or the adverse effects associated with drug use without directly affecting um, the use of the drug itself. Gotcha. Uh, so providing clean needles is, sure. is, a, is a perfect example of a harm reduction uh, uh, approach. Um, and uh, uh, giving somebody a different opioid um, that would reduce their, uh, their attempts to obtain an illegal opioid, like either diverted um, prescription or heroin, um, giving them another opioid, same thing. It's a harm reduction. We're not getting them away from the opioids. We're trying to make it safer uh, for them with realizing that they're probably going to use opioids no matter what we do. How So we know about, um, you know, methadone maintenance programs and whatnot, and they tend to fall outside our purview in the emergency department. Tell us a little bit about what we've put together here for um, the idea of approaching this from the use of Suboxone, right? So many people... Uh, know that methadone requires a special license. Uh, you and I, are, well, actually, I say me. You, you're getting your addiction medicine thing uh, on its way, but um, I, as an EM physician, toxicologist, I'm not prescribing methadone. But there's a little window for me to use Suboxone in the emergency department and even to provide some uh, intermediate relief over the next few days. Um, what's that all about? What's the X license? What's the Suboxone uh, pro program um, about? So the way that this all um, came about was that um, opioid treatment programs, which are that same methadone maintenance program you were describing, um, those have existed for, of course, years, um, and they worked as a solution for some patients but not for all patients. Um, and some of the problems associated with uh, methadone maintenance, um, those type of programs, was you have to go every day to get your medication. Uh, there was a certain stigma associated with going to the clinic um, that would deter people from using the clinic. Instead, they would go back to abusing. Mm. Um, and so in 2000, um, uh, the federal government, DEA, said, you know what, we need another pathway, a better solution. And so they came up with us, uh, this data, uh, data Act of 2000, which is what brought about the ability to do buprenorphine as a treatment, also known as office-based uh, opioid treatment or opioid therapy. Okay. Um, and so this OBOT, uh, which we think of as being, being the Suboxone or buprenorphine, okay. um, allows uh, providers, uh, regular doctors who obtain an X waiver um, to uh, keep patients in their clinic as uh, on an opioid replacement regimen, more or less uh, buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. um, and they're allowed to carry so many patients a year and then they can always apply uh, after a certain amount of time, they can apply to carry more patients, but they're allowed to carry a certain number of patients in their, in their practice while they're still uh, you know, a family practice doctor, an internal medicine doctor, and they care for patients with, with other problems as well. Gotcha, so the patient doesn't have to drive to, you know, uh, Third in Girard, for lack of a better term, and and say you know go, they could go see their family physician, stay within the current mainstream of medicine, and get the opioid replacement therapy in that manner. Right. So it removes a lot of that stigma. They're mm -hmm. not going to a specific clinic. They don't have to show up every day. They get a prescription for it, just like anything else. Um, and so it makes it a more palatable alternative for a lot of people who are addicted to opioids, um, but who would otherwise feel uncomfortable going to a methadone, um, a methadone clinic. Um, and so within that same um, act, it gave us, uh, those of us who don't have an X waiver, an opportunity to induce people um, with buprenorphine to try to treat their acute withdrawal, mm -hmm. um, provided that we have 
um, some sort of setup that we can hand them off to a physician who has an X waiver uh-huh. so that um, we're not just giving them a one-time dose and saying, see you later, and then a few days later they're back on heroin. Instead, we're kind of giving them a bridge to get in to see um, that, that X waiver physician who can then put them into um, a stable um, buprenorphine treatment regimen. Okay, so the room under the tent for emergency medicine is we see these patients, um, we'll see them in withdrawal. We approach them and say, we can start you on Suboxone if you're interested in being on Suboxone and not continuing with your narcotic use or what have you. And then we can give them a few days worth. How many days do we do we end up giving them? So we are allowed to administer up to three days um, of the that medication. We're not allowed to prescribe it to them per se, but we can give it to them while they're in the emergency department and we can have them come back and continue to get it from us for three days total. I got gotcha. you. Uh, and then at the conclusion of that time, we're cut off from them. We're no longer allowed to provide it for them. So um, for a long period of time, or, or the DA doesn't specify. So uh-huh. presumably, it's it's for forever. For forever, um, okay. because they don't actually say what's the window until you can go back and do it again. I gotcha. Um, and that's per provider. So in the ER, it's a little different. Okay. Uh, so if I was a primary doctor and. I don't have an X waiver and you know, Jane Doe comes to me and says, I need buprenorphine. I could give it to her three days in a row while I'm trying to set her up with a Suboxone clinic. In the ER, it might be a different provider every day since we don't work a set schedule, but um, it, the actual three-day limit is per provider. So it's it's odd to apply it to the emergency okay, department, but, yeah. but it, somehow it would you know come to be, uh, it would somehow apply to us in that fashion. Okay. So... The patient arrives on a Monday. Um, they get some Suboxone, uh, and um, good luck. The the, the uh, addiction medicine clinic that we're going to refer them to is open on Tuesday, so off they go on Tuesday to get to continue with their um, their Suboxone in, uh, induction or Suboxone maintenance, I should say. Now we've been working on this program. We don't have it quite started yet because we've hit some bumps in the road. Not surprising, the bumps in the road have nothing to do with receptors. They have everything to do with insurance companies and um, the population we serve, which has a hard time getting access to um, Medicaid-supported uh, outpatient uh, Suboxone programs. So we've we've been fortunate to find a partner in that. But um, if folks that have, for example, somebody that has um, – I won't say good insurance, but somebody who has insurance that accepts this type of thing should be able to follow up with their family physician the next day, if it will. Um, if it's a Friday, I suppose they come back on a Saturday to the ED and a Sunday. So it is not one and done, right? It's it's definitely an arrangement with the emergency department. You need protocols because one of your partners is going to see the patient the next day. Right. Interestingly, we did a little an unofficial survey of our faculty here, uh, and we wanted to know what everybody's interest level in doing this is. And we thought we were slightly concerned that we were going to get a tox consult every single time, but it sounded like the faculty were, they were very comfortable. They said, we can use the Cal scale, the Cal score and, and sort out who needs it. And, and I think a lot of other in looking at some of our affiliate sites, everyone's interested in doing this because truthfully, there's nothing more frustrating than throwing Clonidine, octreotide, you know, here's a shot of Toradol, uh, have some Haldol and Ativan, uh, you know, when for lack of one drug, um, you could have the whole problem solved. 
So take me through it. What would it be like? Patient arrives, we would do a cow score. What score gets you, will we consider um, necessary to say that's sufficient to demonstrate withdrawal? Because we don't want to precipitate withdrawal, right? Right. So somebody who's got very minimal signs of withdrawal um, would be that person who you'd send into precipitate withdrawal. And so you'd want to avoid giving Suboxone to that patient. And in fact, you'd tell them to come back in, in 12 to 24 hours uh, to, to be seen again if 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 they wanted to reassess. Right? Yeah, okay. Um, but uh, the minimum score that most people consider for induction to Suboxone, it varies by clinic. But uh, people say around a score of 11 to 13 is okay. where you're, you hit moderate withdrawal. And you're at minimal risk of precipitated uh, withdrawal when you give Suboxone to that patient. Some people use a score as low as five. So now you're talking about kind of sensitivity specificity. You'd be able to treat more patients, but you're at a higher risk of sending somebody into withdrawal if you give to someone with a score as low as five. Mm. So um, somewhere around 11 to 13 is where you start feeling good about um, that this is a safe patient for you to induce in the emergency department. And then we'll give them a dose, and then we watch them for a little while. How long? Uh, you should hold on to them. Um, the best practices guideline says hold on to them for two hours. Okay. Uh, the idea there is that you'll get a sense for whether or not they um, are becoming opioid toxic. So if someone comes in I gotcha. and, uh, and they've got some withdrawal, but they really don't have much in the way of opioid tolerance, if you give them a dose of Suboxone, you could potentially give them too much mm-hmm. uh, and cause them to have an opioid uh, toxidrome. Uh, the same as if they had overdosed on anything else. Uh, so we would want to hold on to them for, for two hours. Um, the nurse can conduct a repeat cow score okay. during that time. You can see, is their withdrawal improved? If their w- withdrawal hasn't substantially improved, you certainly could give another dose of, of, of buprenorphine and then watch them again for another two hours. Um, or if, if their withdrawal is improved, then you'd say at the end of the two hours, you look okay. Give them opioid precautions. Uh, you know, if you develop... Slurred speech, feels uh, dizzy, tired. If you're not breathing normally, then you need to come back here because uh, we should still, despite all that, be uh, concerned about buprenorphine uh, toxicity. Okay, and then they would come back tomorrow. Presumably, if the if the if clinic didn't do the handoff. Right? Yep, yep. If the clinic's not open, they could come back the next day. They would get that same dose. Um, at that point, you wouldn't need to observe them since we know that they had the same dose the, the prior day. Um, and then they would be able to uh, follow up the next day, presumably with the, with the clinic. And our thought with the uh, with our current protocol is that we're going to have them sign all the treatment consents for the actual clinic where they'll be treated at the time they're seen in the emergency department. So that we're we'll actually be consenting them for that long-term treatment with the goal that we're not just giving them a one-time dose and sending them on their way. We really are trying to induce them into a therapeutic uh, treatment program. Yeah, people do uh, change their mind about Suboxone. Yes. So um, it's um, it's important to lay out the parameters to patients. You know, the, the most you'd be here would be three 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 visits. You know, and um, you're signing on to. We're starting you on this because you're signing on to um, a um, Suboxone program and want to become heroin free. You know, you name it free. Um, and it's important to get the, get get a sense. Other things um, is there a role for a urine drug screen, um, looking at co addictions, uh, psych disorders. How does that all fit into our assessment? So we would want to be very careful about um, enrolling a patient with uh, comorbid psychiatric disease into a Suboxone program ourselves. So that if if the person does have a, a comorbid psychiatric disease, certainly getting a behavioral health. A consultation is, is a reasonable thing to do to okay. try to make sure that we're doing the best thing. This is all about the best thing for the patient. So 
we want to make sure we're doing that. Um, a urine drug screen, a serum alcohol level, pregnancy test, um, all are reasonable screen sure. um, techniques. The, the goal of the urine drug screen, um, one is that it should be positive for opioids. Um, it certainly possible it could be a, a false negative if the person is abusing fentanyl, um, mm-hmm. but, but uh, it should be positive for opioids generally. Then we also want to see are there other sedative hypnotics on board. If they're co-abusing um, a benzodiazepine, that might be a reason not to start them on a Suboxone protocol because mm-hmm. we'd be worried that therapeutically that mix of their benzodiazepine they're either diverting or prescribed plus uh, the Suboxone may give them excessive CNS sedation and, and respiratory depression. Mm. So we want to be careful for those things. So there's some caveats to uh, to the process. Well, this is one, you know, I can remember when uh, the first time somebody came up to me in the emergency department and said, we want you to follow these guidelines. And nobody uh, was willing to follow guidelines. <laughs> you know, everybody was a, a, a captain, a, a ship of one. Now, uh, because the concept of practicing as a group and, and having day-to-day variability is not what we want, Having a protocol and adhering to it is, is, is very important. So I think the, that's one thing we've determined. We've been working on a protocol with um, our psychiatry department and the behavioral health clinicians, and knowing what everybody is doing is certainly uh, a key to the, whole, to the whole process. Well, we're, we're close to getting going. I suppose we should probably circle back sometime in the future and see what our uh, experience is like. Um, I think... This is a good basis for people to listen to this podcast and get an understanding of what uh, uh, the program is going to be about. And uh, for emergency docs uh, who are considering this program, uh, they should really think about it and, um, you know, listen back to EM Toxcast and we'll see, uh, report back what our experience is, what our lessons learned are. Dave, thanks for joining me. Uh, It was great. You're, I think, a shoo-in for your addiction medicine boards. You got the receptor thing (laughs) all, all figured out. All right. Thanks a lot.